Welcome to the Musician's Venture Podcast. This is a podcast focused on lessons learned from musicians' backstories, as well as from building successful careers in the music business. My name is Nick O'Brien, and I'll be interviewing artists and industry experts and offering insights based on events that Wisconsin Music Ventures has produced. On occasion, I'll be joined by Allison M., the founder of Wisconsin Music Ventures, as she and I will dive into topics relevant to the music industry. So let's get down to business. Right. On this episode, we are doing part two with Mark Tonelli, who's a professor, jazz guitarist, composer, and a whole lot of things, uh, all generally revolving around jazz guitar and jazz music, uh, who is fairly freshly back from being a Fulbright scholar over in Brazil. So welcome, Mark. Thank you. Thanks for being here. So um, I talked to you pretty soon after you were back from Brazil, and now you've been back a little bit. Uh, a little bit longer. How long has it been? It's been about six weeks now. So do you feel fairly fully adjusted? I'm not sure there is a fairly, there's a fully adjusted. Um, a, a place like Brazil, which I really fell in love with, you know, 30 years ago when I first found out about it and then only really truly fell in love with it when I went there. Um, I don't know if you ever stop thinking about it, you know, and stop wanting to go back. So, yeah, I think I'm, to, to answer your question, to not be evasive. Yeah. I think I'm, you know, we've readapted to the culture, you know, my own, to my own country, but I, you know, still think about Brazil every day, multiple times a day. Yeah. Yeah. So it had that sort of impact on you for sure. Yeah. And how long were you there again? We were there for five months from April to the beginning of April to the end of August. So just about five months. Okay. And, uh, and you were there, I mean, uh, we had a podcast episode uh, prior to you leaving where we were kind of discussing what you would be doing as you headed out, um, what you expected what your goals were. Uh, but, uh, I mean, can you tell us a little bit of what actually happened, uh, once you arrived there, what, what were you up to? Well, as you mentioned in the introduction, I was a Fulbright scholar, and Fulbright is the State Department's international exchange program. And they send academics, uh, researchers, uh, engineers, doctors, artists, professions of all type around the world to further relations with other countries. And there's Fulbrighters, as they're called, in about 160 countries. They're usually affiliated with an institution like a research lab or um an art center, or most commonly a university. And so what I was doing was being a visiting professor at the federal university in the city I lived in, which was called Uberlandia or Uberlandia. And uh, federal universities are are the thing in Brazil. Um, they, um, they're federally, federally funded, of course, but they're more difficult to get into than the private universities, which is kind of the opposite of what it is here in the U.S. Uh, they're more prestigious. And so if you're going to a federal, right, in quotes, a federal, that's just how they usually refer to it, mm -hmm. uh, you know, you've had to pass some fairly stringent entr entrance examinations. And, you know, you're a, you're, you're a pretty good student. Um, so that's what I was doing was teaching at one of the federal universities 
the city that we lived in. And I taught, you know, what I teach here, basically. I, direct, I taught a improvisation course, and I also taught electric guitar lessons. Yeah, very nice. And uh, so what is the jazz scene like in Brazil and Uberlandia? Well, they, you know, if they have some jazz, uh, it's not the most popular music there, just like it isn't the most popular music here in the U.S. You know, it's kind of an art music or a niche music. Um, but they do have some jazz, and there were students and faculty members, you know, colleagues that I had at the university that were interested in jazz. And so, um, but they don't really have a formal jazz program um, and actually most Brazilian universities. So where I was teaching, I was bringing them something they didn't really have before. They didn't have a jazz improvisation course and they didn't have jazz guitar lessons. And so I was literally the first jazz guitar teacher. I was the first electric guitar teacher they had had. And I think most of the students hadn't, had never really thought about improvisation, at least jazz improvisation to the depth that I was, um, you know, kind of, compelling them to think about it, uh, asking them to think about it, inviting them to think about it. And we were just talking about fairly basic concepts, actually, but they hadn't really, you know, thought about it before. And many students came up to me and said, oh, this is this is really great to have this American perspective from, from someone who's an American, who's a jazz musician, bringing America's music to our country in, in this authentic way. We hadn't really thought about these types of things before. You know, this has been a really enriching experience for us. So in terms of the jazz scene there, there are people that are playing it. And there are some people who are, are, are quite good in the, in the larger cities like Sao Paulo, where I went and played um, uh, played a gig there and also went and did some sightseeing. Those that's the, has the best jazz scene in Brazil. And then the musicians that are playing jazz there are as good as any musicians here in the U.S. playing jazz. They really are top-notch players. Mm-hmm. But in a smaller city like Uberlândia, which is not even that, small there's 750,000 people there um you'll have you know there there is a smaller jazz scene i don't wouldn't even say there's a scene there's just some people playing jazz here and there some of them are pretty good most of them are, are better at the brazilian styles or they're better at pop styles pop and rock music american rock music is very popular there so mm-hmm. so you know i was yeah it, it, the scene varies but in the scene, city where i was living in not not so much it wasn't so much jazz Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And when you say they're playing jazz, I mean, is it similar to what we in the U.S. would consider jazz, or is it almost like a Brazilian take on the American jazz? It's a little bit of both. That was, you know, something that I learned, at, you know, after I got there, that the repertoire that jazz musicians play really throughout the world is pretty much the same. There's probably a good fifty hundred core songs that every jazz musician learns regardless of where you are in the world do they have a brazilian real book that they're working out of (laughs) they work out of the same real book the same real book that we do here yeah there should be a brazilian real book actually or maybe there is there's definitely song books of brazilian musicians but yeah they're playing a lot of the same songs we do here sometimes they'll play it with kind of a brazilian flair i mean and they you know they can't help that they grew up with a different culture, a different style, uh, a different approach to playing jazz than than we did because of their culture, which has influenced the way they play. And so, you know, um, the first I think one of the first gigs that oh, was the first gig I played. 
Yeah. When, when, for the first couple of gigs I played, I really noticed that when they played jazz, you know, like American jazz, like swing jazz, you know, with a swing feel, it, it was pretty good. It was pretty, pretty close, you know, but they didn't always do things I expected the rhythm section to do or the drummer to do at this, you know, at this cadence or at this turnaround. And the bass player wasn't exactly doing what I expected. And, and so I wasn't hearing the American version of jazz. Um, but by the same token, when I was playing Brazil, their music, Brazilian music, I really felt like, you know, the odd man out, even though I had studied it and had been listening to it for years, I wasn't playing it nearly authentic, as authentically as they were. And they were probably thinking, he's not doing what we expect a guitarist to be doing at this part of the song. So it was like, yeah, kind of playing American jazz with a Brazilian accent mm -hmm. or playing Brazilian jazz with an American accent, which can hardly be helped, right? We're just, we bring to it what we... Right, right. And what's part of our, our background. Right. And then, um, and I think I remember you saying that Bossa Nova is a really, you know, obviously a really big uh, genre down there as far as their jazz music. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, it's a Bossa Nova is a Bra Brazilian jazz style that mm -hmm. developed in Rio de Janeiro, which was is, is somewhat far from where I was. But yes, every, every, you know, most Brazilian musicians play Bossa Nova. Mm hmm. Did you learn a few things while you were there about that style? Yeah, I mean, that was, you know, the style I had studied the most before I left mm -hmm. was bossa nova and samba. Those are the two biggest mm -hmm. Brazilian styles. There's other styles. Um, there's a, a collective of musicians from the state I was in called Minas Gerais. The state is called Minas Gerais, who, um, who kind of formed part of my the research component of my Fulbright, and that's called Clube da Esquina. And Clube da Esquina is like, uh, yeah, it's like this collective of musicians that kind of played a, a mixture of Brazilian jazz or Brazilian music, jazz, rock, a kind of very Beatles influenced. They kind of all jumbled it together into this new style that was born in the state where I came from. So that's a whole other, a whole other sound is the Clube da Esquina sound. And a lot of places I went to throughout Brazil, and I traveled quite a bit throughout the country to, to perform and give master classes and things like that. They were playing, a lot of the musicians were playing this, you know, this Clube da Esquina sound. So I learned some of those songs. Um, and that was, that was one of my, um, objectives going there was to immerse myself in this particular style to learn more about it that was really the research part of my fulbright and i did i mean yeah. i came back with so much information that it will literally take me years to sort through it all yeah and when you say you were researching it uh, how how were you researching it through performing through study through what methods mostly through performing it there are, you know, there are musicologists who are like, you know, music scientists or music researchers, and they'll go out and, you know, research something from an academic perspective or go out and do field interviews and things like that. My research as a performer was more of learning this music, um, getting to know what 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 are the important songs that are part of this movement, Clube da Esquina, which means corner club, by the way. Okay. Like what, are, what are the important songs you know from this collective of musicians that released a few albums and then some of them went off and had solo careers and have become legends in brazil and some of them are even well known here in the u.s you know what are the important songs from this collective um so that was kind of the first thing like what what's the repertoire you know mm -hmm. so and i wound up finding out, out, out a lot of it because the musicians that i were i was playing with on different gigs in different cities would often program it you know as part of a, a set list and until I got to the point where I started programming it on my gigs because I wanted to keep, you know, keep up with this, this particular song. Um, 
And so that was the first thing was like, what is the repertoire? Learning the repertoire. And then just kind of learning like what the history is, um, how how this collective got started. And they just kind of like met, you know, in restaurants and bars and their, their each other's houses. And they all basically still live there in the state capital, which is called Belo Horizonte, which means beautiful, beautiful horizon. And they all pretty much still live there in this in this city. Um, and they just kind of became friends and started hanging out together. So I wanted to know, you know, how did the music form? Where did it form? And I actually go, went, to, I got to go to Belo Horizonte um, and go to some of the places where they hung out and, you know, met. Um, and I got to play in that city as well. I, I got to see one of the really famous musicians, uh, probably the in terms of guitar, one of the most famous Brazilian jazz guitarists. And his name is Toninho Horta. Hmm. So I went to see Toninho play and um got to meet him before the show as well and he was surprised that i spoke portuguese and and complimented me on it and so um what type of venue does someone like him play at that was a jazz festival that was in a city about an hour and a half away from where i lived called uberaba okay so i lived in uberlandia and uberaba was about about an hour and 15 minute drive and so he was playing at this jazz festival he was the headliner. There was a couple of opening groups and he was the headliner. And uh, man, the place was packed. They, they all knew who Toninho was. He's, you know, he's a famous guy in Brazil and he's fairly well known here among jazz musicians. Most jazz musicians know who he is. I've known who he, who he was for decades. I've known him. So for me, it was a thrill to, you know, to see this legendary musician, you know, so the, the research part of it was learning the music playing it with the different knowing what the repertoire was in the first place then playing it then going to the places where the music you know developed and then seeing some of the musicians perform seeing some of this collective like Tony and you perform and so i really felt like i i w- did what i went there to do and actually did more than i thought i should add that i had a, a colleague at, at my university where i taught at the federal university who was an expert in Clube da Esquina. he did his doctoral dissertation on it and includes it most semesters when he's teaching it. He does something with it's it's usually usually forms part of the repertoire of some ensemble that he's working at each each semester. And so I met with him. We spent a couple of hours one morning talking about Clubida Esquina, um, talking about the history and his dissertation. This thing should be published. This is like a, a masterwork. You know, it's a it's a magnum opus. Truly, it's like five hundred pages of in-depth analysis of i think a couple of hundred songs um from the from these musicians it's it's just a masterpiece but you know he he just kind of doesn't do much with it and i'm like you know you should get this thing published and he's like oh yeah well you know and he's just a very humble guy but he he loves this music and it's mm-hmm. really a passion for him so just by chance there was a colleague at the university that had this that's a deep knowledge so i picked up a lot of things from him we performed a couple times together and performed some of that music you know so that was another way i absorbed that music i shouldn't say it was by chance i lived in the state where that music was born and so there are a lot of musicians who are interested in it it wasn't by chance at all I mean, it's you'd be hard pressed not to find an area of minas gerais where people don't know what club is mm-hmm. at least you know in music academic circles so anyway that that was that was my research yeah, nice. And then uh, you were there to teach as well at the university, at the federal university. Um, can you tell a little bit about how that went for you? That was an, it was an incredible experience. It was a very um, humbling experience because 
I had to teach in Portuguese for four months. Mm-hmm. So I had been studying for three years before I left, not with the intent of going. It, it was the other way around. I had started, you know, I had started my fascination with Portuguese 30 years ago. And then about three years ago, I just started studying the language for fun and then got into the culture and I was already into the music. And so I got the idea to go to Brazil. So people often ask me, oh, did you start learning Portuguese? Cause you know, you were going to Brazil. Actually it was the other way around. I started learning Portuguese. And then I thought maybe I shouldn't finally now go to Brazil after mm-hmm. I've, I picked up the language. What so made you I, decide to study Portuguese in the first place? I had always wanted to study it. I have, I've loved it. You know, I've loved the music and the culture um, and the language for most of my adult life. And it took a long time to get to the point where I actually started really studying it. I started with Duolingo. My, my daughter had, had, was doing Duolingo at school a little bit. And she kind of, you know, said, Hey dad, why don't you try this app out? And I was like, well, okay. Um, and you have to pick a language to start, you know, Mm-hmm. using it you can't just go in there and and like look around you have to use you know pick a language so i picked portuguese because i was like i've always wanted to learn portuguese and you know three hours later i was still there um on my phone with duolingo mm-hmm. you know learning how to say the cat drinks milk you know and all this <laughs> stuff and i haven't missed a day of study in wow. three and a half years i finished the duolingo tree they call it i finished mm-hmm. that you know years ago but i've supplemented my study with online courses books websites um wow. conversation partners i mean I'm, you know i treat it like another instrument i mm-hmm. it's like i you know i have like my lang my portuguese language chops that i work on every day and so it's you know it's a serious thing for me it's something yeah. i really dedicated myself to so by the time i got there right to do this fulbright i had already been studying for three years and i generally got by but you just just they're just situations you're not gonna be prepared for. So, you know, one of those that I was not completely prepared for was teaching in the classroom. I realized, you know, I just didn't know how to say certain things when we were rehearsing a group, for example. Uh, like, okay, let's start on the second beat of, you know, measure five. I'm like, how do you, let's start in the second half of measure five. How do you say mm-hmm. second half of, of measure? You know, so I, my students would have, sometimes they would tell me how to say things. Um, same thing with my guitar students, there are certain technical terms that I tried to learn before I went, but I just couldn't get everything, you know, learned. Right. So we'd get stuck in a lesson and sometimes we'd go around and around until I think the student finally understood what I was saying, but I was never quite sure. And this kind of thing happened um, outside the university too, when we would, you know, go and I say, we, I went with my wife and our, our three kids. We have three right. teenagers. Right. So the whole family went, you know, when we'd go to a restaurant or, you know, have to go to the supermarket um, fill up the car, get a haircut. You know, you just don't learn how to say things like, you know, trim my sideburns half halfway. You know, that's just some, not something you learn in a in Duolingo or in a Portuguese class. So, yeah, there was all these little pehengis, pehengis like mishaps, right? That that popped up, um, and we're you know awkward sometimes, but you know we got through it. And uh, Brazilian people are just the loveliest people, really wonderful, really warm. I, you know, I fell in love with them as a people as well. So they kind of put up with our, our little pehangis, our, <laughs> our, um, our difficulties, but you know, um, that was part of the adventure, you know, yeah. is, is experiencing that. And so I said, as I said, it was, it was humbling to, to teach in Portuguese every day and to just function, do everything in Portuguese every day. Do the Portuguese, Nobody speaks English. Uh, right. I was going to ask. Yeah. Yeah. I thought I remember you saying that. Uh, so they, they are not brought up learning other languages or if they are not English, 
so they, so you're really on your own out there. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. They yeah. study English the way we study like Spanish or French here in high school, okay. you, you know, walk out of a course and you know, you can't really speak. You can't go to the country and have a conversation with mm -hmm. people. You can mm -hmm. say a few phrases. That's, that's how they speak English. Okay. So, yeah, I mean, maybe if you go to a really big city like Sao Paulo or Rio de Janeiro, Rio de Janeiro, where they're used to having tourists, there are more people that speak English there. And you could probably get by in the hotels and the restaurants and the tourist areas. But we were nowhere near places like that. And the city where we're in, there, there couldn't have been more than 20 Americans in the whole city, if, if that. Mm -hmm. And so they just do not, or they're not used to having Americans there. And so they, you really have to, um, you have to be able to speak Portuguese uh, to, to get around. Um, but that's not to say that they weren't welcoming. They really, I think we were a novelty for them. This Midwestern American family, you know, fair skin, walking around in Brazil was something different for them. And they, they really gravitated toward, toward our family and, and, you know, helped us in a lot of different situations. Is that so area, nice. uh, sorry, um, I was just going to ask if that area, um, Uberlandia, or even Brazil as a whole, like, is, is it very touristy with Americans? No, no, not at all. <laughs> the, the, the biggest tourist area is Rio de Janeiro, which is, a, which is probably Brazil's best known city. Mm -hmm. And there's the beach there, and there's... Um, Corcovado and the Christ, the Redeemer statue, and you know, kind of, which is a, one of the seven wonders of the world. So there's some things there to see that that people go and do that Americans, American tourists go and go to Brazil for. Uh, but even there, it's not like you know going to Europe where you you know you're you're in Paris or Rome where there's just tons of Americans. It's not quite that way, even in Brazil's biggest cities. And, you know, and so outside those cities, um, Sao Paulo would be another city where some Americans, you know, would go because it's the fourth largest city in the world. It's the largest city in the Western Hemisphere. Um, it's just a, you know, it's a megalopolis. And so, and there's a lot of history there. That's where the country was founded, really. Um, and so, um, or at least the city of Sao Paulo was, was founded. Sao Paulo was a state and also it's the capital um, so it's like saying New York, New York, there's the state of Sao Paulo, and then there's the capital, which is mm -hmm. also Sao Paulo. And that's what most people mean when they say Sao Paulo, they're talking about this city of 12 million mm -hmm. people. Mm -hmm. Anyway, um, yeah, it's not a tourist country. Mm -hmm. And so nobody speaks English. They're generally not used to Americans uh, outside those two huge cities and maybe a couple of other cities um, scattered throughout the country. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, we were we were a novelty. Did your family learn the language or were they uh, somewhat familiar before they headed out and out or how did, how did they deal with it? We tried different things. My wife was the person who uh, had studied the most before we left. Um, she was working on Duolingo fairly regularly for about nine months or so. Our oldest son had done a little bit of study and then our middle son and our daughter they didn't study so much, but we tried different things. We tried to have like a Portuguese lesson each night or like, um, you know, uh, we would try to watch a Portuguese video a couple times a week, um, or we'd have like conversation practice in the car. It, you know, it was kind of hit or miss. I don't think a whole lot of it stuck, but they've definitely come back with a few phrases that they didn't know. But while we were there, they really couldn't communicate unless I was there. 
I was the de facto translator for every occasion. And even I would get stuck sometimes. But mm -hmm. uh, so, yeah, they 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 could not, you know, go to the store and any place, you know, where that required even the, an intermediate level conversation without somebody there translating for them. Mm -hmm. Well, at the same time, they I mean, they were your your kids, if I recall, they were doing online school. So they were still kind of connected to the U.S. and uh, to people they could still converse with. It wasn't like they were just like off on their own without, um, you know, any conversations happening uh, besides each other. So I, is that correct? Yeah. You know, we got there in early April and that there was still six, six weeks left of their semester. So they finished it remotely. The teachers would send the assignments. They would do them and email the assignments back to their teachers here in the U.S., um, which meant that for the first six weeks, they were in the apartment a lot during the week. Um, at the end of May, you know, toward the middle to end of May, when their semester in the U.S. ended and the actual kids in Brazil are in school because, you know, we're flipped, right? We're in the northern hemisphere. They're in the southern hemisphere. So while we were there, it was spring for us and it was fall for them. So their kids were in school, you know, mm -hmm. uh, Brazilian kids were in school. Even after the semester ended for our kids, though, they spent a lot of time in the apartment just because there was nothing. Um, they just you know, they had, you know, they had a barrier to making friends and forming relationships with people because they didn't speak the language. So one thing we found for them to do was we joined a country club. And the country clubs are very popular in Brazil. Here, they seem to be marketed, you know, towards like an, to, to an affluent, you know, demographic. There, they're kind of marketed to the middle and lower class. And Brazil has a very small upper class, a fairly small middle class, and a large lower class, socioeconomic class. Uh, you know, there's a fair amount of poverty there. And there's a lot of um, inequality, I would say, mm -hmm. social inequality, economic inequality. And so the country clubs are like what everybody does. Like, you know, you go to work, you finish work, you pick up your kids from school and you go to the country club and you go swimming, you play tennis, you, know, you eat at the restaurant, you grab a snack, play beach volleyball. Um, you know, you can run on the track, work out at the gym, just socialize with people, you know, lay on the deck, get a tan, whatever. Um, it's kind of a thing just, and there's usually several country clubs. I think there were three or four in the city we lived in. And so I had a friend who belonged to one and was able to get us like a temporary membership. So for two months, the kids would go there most days of the week. They play tennis, they, they work out. I think they swam a couple times, maybe actually the pool was being you know, renovated, I think a lot while we were there. Um, they play beach sports, like I said, beach volleyball, beach tennis, beach soccer, those sports were really popular. And so that was good for them. That was a way, you know, that gave them a social outlet. Mm -hmm. And I think our boys actually played a lot of basketball and they wound up kind of playing informally on a team that met, I think on, on Wednesday nights, and they were the best basketball players there, even among <laughs> adults. So they were like, they had, the Brazilians were really happy to have them. <laughs> That's funny. How old are your kids again? Uh, our daughter's 13. Our our son is 16. And then our oldest son is going to be 18 next month. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. yeah, they're about two years yeah. apart. Good ages for basketball for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Nice. And uh, going back to the, the topic of school at the university, um, what types of classes were you teaching there? Well, I was, I was teaching two music ensembles. Mm -hmm. And so they were doing 
they were doing uh, I had selected three albums, two Brazilian albums and one American album, all all jazz basically, or what they call MPB, Musica Popular Brasileira, which is Brazilian popular music. MPB is like a, a moniker for like pop music, or at least a certain style of pop music in Brazil. So I picked a couple of MPB albums. Um, and then a, a Miles Davis album. Uh, and so the students from the two ensembles were working on this music throughout the semester. And then at the end of the semester, they perform each performed a set of this music. They performed on a recital. Uh, in the electric guitar lessons I was teaching, I had eight students and they were grouped in duos. I had never really taught duos before. It was always usually like one student at a time or sometimes a group guitar class. But duo, that was an interesting challenge. I found a way to make it work in the end. And those students also performed in a recital. And then the other class I was teaching was jazz improvisation. And I had taught that class several times here at Millican University, um, mm -hmm. where, where, I'm, where I'm a professor, and Millican's Indicator, Illinois. And so I had taught that class um, you know, se several semesters in a row. So I already had a syllabus and I already had a, you know, a, a process for teaching that class. And I just kind of modified it and taught it there. Um, so those, that's what I did academically. I also presented um, a couple of times on my research and arts entrepreneurship, and then also gave some lectures on arts entrepreneurship. That's one of my, you know, my areas and that I also teach here at Milliken. That was been my area of research while I was a doctoral student. Um, I published a couple of books on arts entrepreneurship, you know, written about it, presented about it, you know, around the country here in the U.S. So that's just one of my areas. And they don't have anything like that in Brazil. There's no arts entrepreneurship. So they were fascinated to hear about my research and about my experiences in my book. They encouraged me to try to get my book translated into Portuguese. They felt mm. there would be a, a market for that. And so um, that was really interesting to, to talk about those topics. If um, they don't have much of an arts entrepreneurship uh, program or base, do they, do they have, uh, I mean, what is their music industry like in that area? That's a, it's an interesting mix that the most, Popular music there is rock music, rock and pop. And actually, in the state of Minas Gerais, the most popular music is probably Sertanejo, Sertanejo, which is like their country music. Okay. Um, it has a slightly more rural feel than our country music here, although we could probably find lots of, you mm -hmm. know, equivalent examples. Mm -hmm. It's often in like duos or trios. Um, and, you know, it talks about country life and, uh, you know, Simple, simple living. Uh, that's really popular. That music is really popular. They have some other styles, um, you know, that are like offshoots of other Brazilian styles, or they're a combination of Brazilian styles and rock, or Brazilian styles and pop, or Brazilian styles and MPB. When I say Brazilian styles, I mean like more folk styles, like like mm -hmm. samba. Samba is like a, you know, that's a that's a uniquely Brazilian style, and so sometimes these styles get mixed and they wind up forming new styles um like ashe ashe i think is kind of like a soul rock samba type style and that's fairly fairly popular as well um am i getting that right ashe um, it might be a different one I'm, I'm thinking of if you had asked me this question three weeks ago when more of this stuff was fresh <laughs> I, I probably would have remembered these styles a little bit better but oh, that's okay but the point is that the scene is probably most pop music with some of this MPB, um, again, also a lot of country music. And then, you know, here and there, you have some people playing jazz. You have some classical music, of course, fair amount of classical music happening at the university. 
But just like the U.S., it's mostly the pop and country styles are the most mm -hmm. popular ones with like, mm -hmm. you know, smatterings of other styles of music. And so the scene is like a lot of bars. Music mm -hmm. happens at bars, restaurants. They do have theaters that are funded um, by the state. Um, they're called municipal theaters. Most you know, major cities will have one. Even some of the smaller cities will. And they'll have more cultural performances there. Some stuff that isn't necessarily pop or country. Mm -hmm. um, uh, let's see what else. Yeah, restaurants, um, a lot of bars, uh, some of these theaters. And then they'll, they'll have jazz, they have festivals, jazz festivals, other types of festivals. I played in a jazz festival. I was there that was sponsored by the university. Mm -hmm. uh, we played in one of these theaters that, that was a municipal theater in the city of Orlandia. And then, you know, we did some other stuff around town. We played in like a bar, restaurant, and then we also did some stuff on campus. So that's that's a pretty good representation that jazz festival of the different mm -hmm. you know types of venues that are that are where, where music happens mm -hmm. so musicians uh performing musicians can be fairly well supported around there say. yeah you know it's interesting here a lot of musicians will people will say you know what do you do for a living and they'll say well i'm a musician but i have this day job you know i like you know i work telemarketing or i do customer support or like whatever it is, you know, mm -hmm. some people are, it's very common in the U.S. for a musician to have some kind of nine to five job. And then they, they keep doing their music on the side with the hopes of eventually flipping the paradigm so that their full time job becomes music. In Brazil, if you're a musician, that's it. You're, you're a mm -hmm. musician. You can actually make a living being a musician. You're not making a stellar living, but you generally can get by. Mm -hmm. I think part of that is that. Brazilians are a really social people. They like to be with each other. They like to be out. It's warm, so you can go out <laughs> often. You know, there's, they really don't have much cold weather in most of the country. So they're encouraged to go out. They really appreciate live music. They just go crazy for it. And some of the crowds that I had that I played for while I was in Brazil were some of the best crowds I've ever played for <laughs> in my life in any situation. They just ate it up. They loved it. They showed out in huge numbers. Even if the music wasn't that great, they still just went wild for it because they just appreciate the effort. Um, mm -hmm. And so there's more live music there because there are more social people. Now, also, I was in a city that was, you know, fairly large. If we had gone to a smaller city, kind of a rural place, no, then maybe there wouldn't be. And the musicians that live there would have to maybe travel to some of the larger right. cities to make a living. But I do know some musicians who fit that description, mm -hmm. live in smaller cities and, and travel to larger cities like Sao Paulo to be able to do work, you know, they play in wedding bands, they play jazz gigs, they play rock gigs. Sometimes they work on the TV shows, you know, whatever, mm -hmm. whatever it is, they, they usually piece it together. There, you know, some of the students that, that were my students at the university were um, coming back to school after having had a career. Some of them were older than me. I had mm -hmm. students that were in their 50s that had kids that were getting their bachelor's or master's degree. And they were coming back to school. The, the student, my students were coming back to school, you know, later in life. And they already had a music career. And so I would ask them, you know, what do you do? And they, well, I'm a musician. That's it. I'm a musician. I perform. Um, a lot of them teach um, and, you know, make a good chunk of the majority of their salary from from teaching. But others, you know, basically just perform. Um, and so, yeah, you have to hustle. 
mm-hmm. and go out and get the gigs and make the contacts, the contacts and network. And some of them are very good at that and others are clueless, but just like we are here, you know, some of my students in the U S are naturally good at that and others mm-hmm. have to learn it, you know, like entrepreneurship is a learned skill for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So. Interesting. Yeah. And, and what types of, so you were, you're talking about some of the places that you played the, the jazz festival and some of the bars. Uh, what are some of the memorable playing experiences that you had? Well, um, I played a lot. Um, I played several times in Uberlandia, played there probably seven or eight times in, in that city. And then I played a few times in Uberaba, the city that was about uh, an hour and a half away. And then I got, and those were great. You know, actually some of those gigs were really good. And other times they were, they were strange, <laughs> like weird things happen. Like, you know, some, some guy who was I stoned or something um, came up in the middle of a gig and started flailing his arms uh, maniacally and shouting something at the top of his lungs while I was performing because I wouldn't let him sit in. Um, but I didn't know him, you know, he was like a complete unknown to me. He, he wanted to sing music. I didn't know and he just looked kind of crazy. <laughs> so you know, sometimes weird things will happen like that in these gigs. Uh, like voltage, that was another thing. Uh, mm. Just standardized in the U.S. It is not standardized in Brazil. There's two or sometimes three different voltages. And if you're not careful, if you don't have the setting on your amp correct or you don't use the correct transformer, you can blow your amp out, which I did twice. <laughs> but most Brazilians blow their amps out, you know, at, at some point. And so I found out later, so I didn't feel quite as like stupid American gringo. Um, so, you know, th- that kind of thing, like those, those kinds of things were memorable in a bad way. Right. But again, part of the adventure, um, when I went, some of the larger cities I went to, those were really memorable. Um, and I flew to most of those. Uh, so, although sometimes I drove, so I, I got to go to the capital Brasilia which is uh, which I flew to, and I did a master class there with the jazz guitar students at the Federal University of Brasilia. And then I did a performance at night with some local musicians. And then from there, I flew to the city of Goiás and worked with students at the Federal University there, and the, which is the Federal University of Goiania, which is the name of the state. And then did a performance at night um, and just going on tour in Brazil and playing in those different cities and then doing the tourist things in, in those cities as well was was really memorable. Uh, and then I flew to Belo Horizonte uh, a couple of weeks later, which is the capital of Minas Gerais and one of the larger music centers in the country. It's a center of, it's a city of about 3 million people, I think. And it's in the mountains and uh, quite far away from where I w- was in Uberlândia, which was in the same state, but the state of Minas Gerais is huge. And so it was like a 10 hour drive or a, hour and a half on the plane when I flew and, you know, just playing in that city that has this rich musical history, especially with the Klubi, the Daiskina movement um, was, was, you know, incredible to play there. And then I also got to tour around and see um, the history of the city and some of the architecture by probably Brazil's most famous architect, a guy named Oscar Niemeyer. And he designed buildings throughout the, the country. And, and he basically designed every building in the city of Brasilia, which is the capital, which was a planned city in 1960. They moved the capital from Rio to, to Brasilia. And he designed all the government buildings there and some, some churches and other buildings. And so his work is very distinctive. It's very elegant in nature. And he tries to, he tries to integrate the buildings into the natural 
beauty of the land so that they all kind of coexist harmoniously. Uh, it's, it's quite striking. So I got to see his work in several cities. That was always a highlight to, to mm-hmm. see his work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the city that I think was really one of the best gigs I've ever had, period, uh, in Brazil or otherwise, was in Sao Paulo. In Sao Paulo it was a seven-hour drive. And I took one of my students with me because getting into Sao Paulo is um, it can be a frightening experience. It's just a massive city. It's like, you know, two New Yorks or four Chicago's. It's just so huge. Um, and there's so much going on and there's so many people. There's lots of things going on in the streets, good things, bad things. And so mm-hmm. uh, it's there's a lot of traffic. The roads are crazy um did you drive when you were i there? did i yeah. drove i drove twice to sao paulo um and you know i never you know some people said hey you're gonna go to the amazon i never needed to go to the amazon to have an adventure i just, <laughs> just getting in and out of sao paulo was was enough uh, but i took my student with me the second time because i knew how difficult it was to navigate and even with the two of us and him being a native of the state of sao paulo we still got lost it took us like an wow. hour to get out of the city when it should have taken like 15 minutes so um i got to play in a club called jazz b in sao paulo like a bona fide jazz club. Uh, it wasn't the only jazz club I played in, in Brazil, but it was probably the best one in the in the country's best jazz scene, which is Sao Paulo. And I played, as I mentioned, with, with really great musicians. Um, and we played a set of mostly my original music and then some Brazilian standards and some American jazz standards. And the audience was there to hear jazz. They were like, you know, a very discerning audience. Mm-hmm. And there was like a box section that was set off from the rest of the club just for patrons who came to see the music. I, I imagine they paid a little extra for that. Mm-hmm. Um, the sound was great. Um, it sounded really great in the club. They had us mic'd really well. That wasn't always the case in every other gig I played. But this gig, in terms of from start to finish really just went very well musically extra musically in terms of the audience and after the gig was over a guy from another club walked up to me and said i'd like to hire your group to play at my club you know so i felt like from beginning to end that was just a really stellar performance very memorable for me to have gotten to play there in sao paulo that's great that sounds amazing um what it was a uh what was it like in um with for the whole experience based on like what you had expected uh was there anything that was just totally different than what you imagined it being like driving driving <laughs> brazil is um and i know we're we're here talking about music but well that's okay anything <laughs> anything yeah. to qualify yeah i mean um uh Traffic lights, stop signs seem optional in most Brazilian <laughs> cities. They have a lot of roundabouts, tons of roundabouts or jug handles, depending on what part of the country you live in. Um, and those are uh, those are kind of dicey as well. Uh, it took a long time to get to become accustomed to the way they drive there. And I think the first few weeks I was just, you know, like frazzled nerves every time i'd get out on the road just getting in and out of our parking garage you know like backing into this tiny little space where you just were just about to hit the car next to you or hit the you know one of the the load bearing um you know not not poles but um supports that held the garage up you were just me you know, barely squeezing into these little spots but they do it every day that's you know part of their 
um, their life that's they don't know anything different. Uh, and a lot of the times when they come here to the U.S., and I know this because I've talked to Brazilians, the thing they notice about our country is how organized it is. They feel like the roads are really well organized. The neighborhoods are well organized. We have a really solid infrastructure. Um, and so they and we're, have a very safe country. So um, there are some parts of Brazilia where you just can't walk on the street with your phone in your hand because someone will, will um, come by, you know, on, on a bicycle and, and snatch it out of your hand hmm. to sell it. Uh, so, you know, as I said, there's quite a bit of inequality and in, in socioeconomic inequality in Brazil. And um, people have a hard time getting a job, keeping a job. Um, and so they resort to crime as a way to, 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 to get by. And because there is so much crime and there's some corruption as well, the police often don't, you know, follow up on these types of crimes. And so criminals are encouraged mm-hmm. to do um, to, to take people's phones. It's, it's, it's a thing. It's a real thing. We never had that problem in Uberlandia. Um, I never felt, you know, unsafe there, but when I went to Sao Paulo, right, this massive city, everywhere I went, there were signs saying, you know, on the hotels or restaurants saying, you know, please don't take your phone out. And I remember we were waiting for an Uber to pick us up, to take us to the gig that night in Sao Paulo at the jazz B club. And I got my phone out to check, to see how close the Uber was. And the security guard the hotel had a security guard standing out front. He walked up to me and said, excuse me, sir, I recommend that you do not take your phone out. (laughs) And so uh, I was like, yeah, you're right. You know, so I put it back in, in my, in my, uh, my pocket or whatever, uh, and just basically waited for the Uber to get there. But that's a thing. And I've unfortunately known a lot of people who got their phones taken from them. We took a tour in Sao Paulo and our tour guide was in the bus, was in the van with us as we were going throughout the city. And we were at a, a stoplight at one point and she saw this guy in a bike drive by and she said, oh, there's the guy who stole my phone. <laughs> you know, yeah. and there was no recourse. There was really nothing right. to do about it. So, you know, this is happening to the, you know, the natives, the locals, people that live there. So tourists are really much more of a target. And so we were mm-hmm. warned many, many times to be careful walking around. Uh, again, I, I hardly ever felt unsafe in that sense, except for Sao Paulo. There's a lot of reports, exaggerated reports about the danger of Brazil. And I was, you know, frankly, a little bit concerned taking a family of five to a place I'd never been to this South American country uh, where we hardly really knew anybody. Um, but, I, I, you know, it, it worked out very well. And as I said, it was really not unsafe. And if just with a little bit of common sense, even mm-hmm. in some of the bigger, less safe cities, you can be safe, you know? Mm-hmm. So uh, don't believe all the reports you hear about the, the you know, <laughs> out of control crime in Brazil. Yes, they do have it, but it's isolated to certain areas, certain types of people, like people in gangs, and uh, in, in some of the slums, which you call favelas, you, you'll get more of that crime. And also, if you make yourself a target, you know, if you walk in the city center with fancy clothes on, and you flash your cell phone, you know, you're asking to yeah. get mugged. Yeah. So with a little bit of common sense, you can, you know, and I knew a few Americans, I met a few Americans there that said, look, I've, I've never had a problem here um, in, in Brazil. Never. Others had, of course, you know, so it's going to depend on your perspective. But so I don't know if that's a I guess that did surprise me that there was less crime than I had led, been led to believe uh, and that it was much safer, which was, of course, you know, encouraging. Uh, you know, one of the things that 
I was following along with was the blog that you had put together. Uh, and that was a, a lot of fun to just kind of see a day in the life or a week in the life of what you were up to. Uh, you were updating that about weekly. Is that about right? Yeah. So we were there for five months, which is 20 weeks. And I had 18 blog posts so just about every week I was okay. posting. And you really encouraged me to do that. And you encouraged me to attach it to my website, which I did. So uh, you can go to mtonalmusic.com slash blog and, and read all about our adventures in Brazil. Yeah. And it looks like you had some people who were definitely tuning in fairly regularly. Uh, was it fun? Like, did you have family and friends back in the States just checking in pretty, pretty often on that? Yeah, I did. You know, I had like a devoted uh, core following of people who would leave comments or, um, you know, would send me a message and say, I really enjoy your blog. Uh, or even when I came back to the U.S., um, people said, hey, welcome back. I really enjoyed reading your blog. And not everybody would leave a comment. But so right. there were probably more people reading it than I than I knew about. But that was an interesting experience because a few people asked me before I left, are you going to do some kind of blog or vlog? And I thought, well, I don't know, maybe I'll, you know, put up some Facebook posts or an Instagram post here or there. And then I thought more about it. And I thought I really should document it. This is a unique experience. Few people get to do this. I really should like formalize this, you know, capture this in a more formal way. And so I, you know, I sat down and the blog posts were at first kind of a pain because it, takes a long time to write a good one, you know, like it would take like a good three or four days to get the whole thing done with the text and photos and any videos, um, captioning all the photos and everything. And so, um, but by the, by the end of it, it was, I was having the, I was doing it, it, the whole thing had flipped. I'd wait till the week had passed, you know, and then I'd be like, okay, I guess I got to sit down and write this blog post. By the end of our time there, I would think about the beginning of the week, okay, okay, what am I going to put in the blog this week? You know, and mm -hmm. and so I'd be taking pictures and think, oh, this picture, this, this will be a good, oh, look at that scene over there. This will be a good mm -hmm. image for the blog. And my friends, my Brazilian friends and colleagues were like, hey, Mark, you better take a picture of that for your blog, you know, because they were reading it too. They were interested to see what does this American think about our country? Mm -hmm. So I would have conversations with them when they would say, oh, that's really interesting about this particular dish that you said you liked or or you talked about the traffic or whatever they're, you know, like we never thought about that, you know, mm -hmm. Oh, here's something you're interesting. There's a, for a country where they don't speak English very much, there's all kinds of English words on restaurants and storefronts. So like self-service food truck, hmm. um, steakhouse, those are word, those are terms that they, you see constantly throughout <laughs> the country. And I, I thought to myself, for a, a non-English speaking country, they sure do have a lot of non-English speaking terms that probably that can't be the best way to reach your your target market, you know, in a language that most people don't understand. But, you know, one of my Brazilian friends who was reading my blog said, it's really interesting. We don't even notice that those words are English. They're just they've just become part of our vocabulary, wow. yeah. our vernacular. So it was interesting for them to see me observe things that yeah. were just second nature to them. And that was, you know, that was a fun thing about the blog. And, you know, by the end of it, I really got into it, you know, like I was really crafting it in a way that. Yeah, it was very um, well written. Yeah, very thorough. You. Yeah, and I uh, suspect you're going to be, yeah, I, I think you already are glad that you have uh, 
done that. But yeah, it was just really fun to just follow along almost in real time to like, oh, what's, you know, what's Mark up to this time this week? So uh, yeah, it, it was really a pleasure to follow that. And um, are you going to be keeping up the blog as you uh, have a bit of an audience in Brazil now? Uh, looking forward to what you might be up to in the United States? I don't know. I thought about that. Um, I think one of the the charms of that blog was that I was in a foreign country. Mm-hmm. I was having this never-ending stream of new experiences. It really was like literally every day was an adventure. And I remember thinking to myself, how am I ever going to go back to the U.S.? Um, every day here is something new, something exciting. Uh, you know, it's like a natural high that I got used to. And I thought, how am I going to go back to the U.S. where it's just everyday life again, and there's no excitement and there's no energy and there's nothing new and different to look forward to every single day. So I think that's part of the reason people were interested in the blog is because I was coming up against these completely unexpected experiences on on a regular basis. And it was probably fun to read about them. I don't know how much fun it would be to read about my, you know, everyday life here in Decatur, Illinois. So I have to think about, you know, what my next project is going to be. Yeah. Or maybe you could just uh, find something interesting or unexpected to do each week indicator. Is it possible? <laughs> I think so. I think it's probably possible. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. That's, a, that's, a, that's an interesting idea. I'll have to give that some more thought, Allison. <laughs> could tie in your music to that, too. Um, but yeah. Yeah. While you have an audience, I don't know. Might as well try and keep their their attention around so that when you do have uh, something bigger again, that they're already there. I don't know. Just food for thought. <laughs> oh, it's, a, it's a good idea you know, to, to try to keep keep the whole thing going. I think I was motivated to do it because, uh, you know, this it, everything was so new all the time. And then I felt like I wanted to document it for myself as much for other people. But uh, yeah, I don't know. It's, I'll have to think about it. I'll, I'll think about it. But that's good ideas. Yeah. Um, Do you expect to be back in Brazil now that you've been there? I do. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to take my students in in our spring, you know, so like in March of 2023, I'm trying to take a group of students from Millican to Brazil for about 10 days uh, in partnership with the Federal University in Uberlandia. Okay. Same place. Yeah, same place. Uh, you know, that was our home base, you know, although I did travel quite a bit, I probably spent, you know, you know, three quarters of the time in in that city. So that's the city I know the best. That's where I have most of my contacts. Um, and so, you know, the idea is that our students from Millican would go there and perform at, on campus. They perform off campus. Uh do some sightseeing, participate in cultural events, things like that. It would be the first time a Millican group goes to Brazil. So I'm really hoping it happens mm, yeah. and it's, it would be historic. It would be, you know, um, incredibly enriching for our students because going to a foreign country, you know, if you really want to know yourself, if you want to know the, know the world better, of course, but if you really want to understand other people and understand uh, and, and be able to communicate with other people and, and have a broader perspective. Go go abroad for some time. Mm-hmm. Abroad, um, it will it will 
it will change you. Living in Brazil changed me. It was a life-changing experience. I'm mm-hmm. not the same person I was when I left in a good in way. what ways? Yeah. Well, I think the warmth of the Brazilian people was um, something that left an impression on me more, more than almost anything else. I expected to go there and really love the food, which I did. I expected to go there and love the weather, which I did, you know, but, and I knew that Brazilians were wonderful people because I had Brazilian friends, but I thought, well, maybe it's just musicians or maybe I just got lucky. Uh, But no, Brazilians are really just a wonderful people. They've had this, you know, tumultuous history. They had centuries of slavery like we did. In fact, I think their, their slavery ended started earlier and ended later than ours and so you know they have racism they um they were occupied by foreign governments the reason they speak portuguese is because they were a portuguese colony for 200 years and the royal family even had its um you know its home base its headquarters so to speak in rio de janeiro when they when portugal came under attack by napoleon hmm. and so they had a military dictatorship that that lasted for 25 years and only ended in 1986. Hmm. And there, so there are scars left from all of these um, these these difficult moments, these challenges that the country has faced. And I think it's made them a warmer people. I think the way they've dealt with it is to love each other more. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think also the warm weather helps. They see each other a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that left me, that changed me, you know, and the way my, I had the relationship I had with my students in Brazil is different than the relationship I had with my students here in the U S yes, of course they were warm because they're Brazilians to begin with warmer. Um, but they were just interested in, in American culture, interested in what like life is like as a musician in the U S and, you know, they asked so many questions. What's the gig like? What, what, what is the salary like? You know, how, you know, how do you do this? How do you do that? And they just, they just wanted to know so much that they felt more like friends to me than students, even though they were very respectful at the same mm-hmm, time. Mm-hmm. You know, as I, as I said goodbye, then they came up and hugged me and everything. You know, it was very emotional. You know, working with with some of my students uh, who left a real you know impression on me, and and kind of taught me you know what what it means to to have to connect with your students, and so. I think that changed me as a teacher and I've tried to bring that back with me here to the U S and, you know, be a little, I hate to use that word authentic because it gets so overused, but just to be more of myself and, you know, less like have this teacher student, you know, distance there always exists, of course, a little bit and, and it has to by necessity, but I think just like being yourself and just being a relatable regular person that, you know, goes so far and that's, you know, uh, so that's something I've tried to tried to incorporate since I've since I've been back is that, you know, really warm, you know, wonderful relationship I had with my students. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Have you been keeping in touch with any any of the students or other colleagues from Brazil? Definitely. Yeah, I've really felt like I made friends for life there. People that I'll never not want to be in touch with again. Uh, what's app? That's a popular Mm, app. Everybody uses WhatsApp in Brazil. If you're not on WhatsApp, you're like really missing everything. Seriously, like you Mm -hmm. you can't get anything done if you don't have WhatsApp. It's just the way everybody communicates. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I'm in fairly regular contact with 
a number of colleagues and students and friends from Brazil. They're all in my WhatsApp. And mm-hmm. so um, some of them are going to try to come here and study. Um, I have some students that are that are looking to come study here at Milliken. I have some colleagues that I made friends with that are looking to come here and do a Fulbright themselves or some sort of visiting professorship. And there are some other colleagues who are, you know, have like an online jazz guitar form or Brazilian guitar form that they have invited me to be a part of. Um, later this month, I'm on the master's thesis defense for a student at the federal university where I, where I taught, you know, okay. invited yeah. me to be on it. So yeah, I've kept in touch with them and I, you know, I'm going to, I don't see why I, I wouldn't want to not stay in touch with them. You know, these have become dear people to me. And so, yeah, I, I'm, I'm looking forward to that. So if I can't be there with them, at least I can be in touch with them. And, you know, technology makes that a lot easier. You know, it's where like 30 years ago, you know, a phone call would be really expensive and then we'd have to send letters and things like that. But now, you know, with social media, it's easy to keep up, keep up. So mm-hmm. yeah, like most of my students follow me on Instagram and I follow them. And so we can see what we're doing. You know, we can really like keep up with each other's lives. And it's a good substitute for, for being there. Nice. Nice. Uh, is there anything that we didn't cover today that you would like to bring up? You asked me musically, what were some of my takeaways? I, I really should give you a better answer for that one. I guess here's a good one. Um, when I got there, I thought I knew a fair amount about Brazilian music. And I, I did, you know, I had studied it and I could get by okay, but right away it became apparent that I was not cutting it, you know, as a playing Brazilian guitar styles. And guitar is really uh, prominent in most Brazilian guitars in most Brazilian styles of music. And so I was, I definitely played the right instrument to be in Brazil, but I wasn't playing it, um, you know, quite up to par. So I, I, you know, um, I was on some gigs with other Brazilian guitarists on occasion. One of them was one of my colleagues from the university. His name was Daniel Lovizi. And he uh, actually, he he teaches uh, acoustic guitar, classical guitar. And um, there's, two ways of there's multiple ways of describing guitars in brazil so if you say guitarra which is that means electric guitar if you say violon that means like classical guitar and that's the type of guitar the violon that's that's found in most uh brazilian music and daniel plays violon he plays electric guitar too he plays guitar as well but mostly he's the he's the violonista he teaches you know um brazilian guitar styles at the university you know, playing the, the 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 classical guitar, the you know nylon string guitar, and so I was on some gigs with him, and was like, "Wow, this guy really knows what he's doing." You know, he's he's playing it the authentic way, and you know, try mentally stealing ideas from him. Uh, and I, you know, I took a lesson with him, like a two-hour lesson, where I was like, "Man, show me how to do this. Tell me what I'm doing wrong here. You know, what would you do in this situation? Or show me how to, you know, how you play this style." And and so he really spent a long time with me, helping me. Um, get get better at that. And so I feel like my Brazilian guitar playing has gotten better since I got back. Um, I started composing some music as well. And so I think the influences that, you know, that just kept coming at me nonstop for five months, students, colleagues, friends were, were sending me uh, YouTube video after YouTube video, after Spotify link of music that they wanted me to hear. <laughs> Um, or, or on gigs that I would play, the musicians would send, you know, the, the lead sheets ahead of time. And so I was constantly exposed to this new music 
And it's so rich and it's so varied and it's so deep that I think it just it naturally influenced, uh, you know, some of the music that I've already written since I got, got back. So, nice. you know, those are, I guess maybe those are some takeaways. Yeah. Yeah. Is any of the music available for us to attach to this podcast? I have an, a new song that I've written that um, I haven't recorded yet, but my plan is to go back to Brazil in a year. And if all works out well, um, I would do that on a sabbatical from from my from the university here, from Millican University, and spend some time recording the new music that I'm writing and that I've will continue to write over the next year with Brazilian musicians in Brazil. Nice. So not yet, but there will be, and I can definitely send it to you. That's when it's great. Done. Great. So part three. Okay. <laughs> part three. Yeah. <laughs> Deal. Sounds good. All right. Uh, anything else at this point? I think we covered a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming back to talk with us and you feeling accl acclimated enough back to the U S still kind of missing it or yeah. I, I do. I feel, you know, fairly acclimated at this point. It's been a month and a half, yeah, yeah. but uh, I still miss Brazil every day. Yeah. Yeah. You probably always will. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thankfully you'll, I, I'm sure you'll find ways to get back and uh, build, build more and more connections to just keep you coming back. So. <laughs> yeah. It's inevitable. Yeah. I'm sure. Yeah. Well, I'm so glad you had such a great experience there. It was fun to, to follow along and uh, thank you for sharing so much of what you did there today. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. Have a good one. Thanks.
Thanks for listening to the Musician's Venture Podcast. Please leave ratings and reviews from wherever you're listening from. Check us out online at themusiciansventure.com for more information on what we have happening, to find past episodes, and ways to get in touch with us. Find us on social media at The Musician's Venture on Facebook and Instagram, and at Musician Venture on Twitter. Like and follow us on all those platforms, and hey, while you're there, engage with and share our content with your friends. The Musician's Venture Podcast is hosted by me, Nick O'Brien, with guest host appearances from Allison M. The podcast is produced by Shannon Coulard, with theme music by Mike Neumeyer. Thanks again for listening. Thank you.